Hey everybody, welcome to episode 5 of Literary Disco, Above the Factory. In this episode, we will begin with a bookshelf revisit, in which Todd, Julia, and I each take something down from our bookshelves to talk about. Then we will discuss our first short story, Above the Factory, by Jerry Gabriel, which appeared in the online literary journal Five Chapters in 2011. And finally, we will judge a book by its cover, a new segment in which we only get the first sentence of a book and try and deduce what we can just from that about the whole darn thing. I'm your host, actor, filmmaker, Ryder Strong, and joining me are my co-hosts, essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Ryder. And also joining us is novelist and critic, Todd Goldberg. Hello, Todd. What up, dog? What up, G? Can we say what Todd looks like right now? Yeah, for some reason on our Google Hangouts, Todd is green. <laughs> and uh, which I'm made... an Avenger, what can I say? Well, I will start because of the Avengers reference. Um, <laughs> I My revisit was inspired by the Avengers, but not in a normal way. Um, this is not going to lead back to graphic novels. Uh, so in the Avengers, the main object of interest is a Tesseract. Do you guys know where I'm going with this? Uh, I, yeah. I saw the movie, yeah. So does anyone know what a another phrase for a tesseract is? Bukaki. No. <laughs> it is it is a wrinkle in time. Oh. Ah. Okay, this great book by Madeline Langle. Love that book. So I so I got all excited by the phrase tesseract. I mean, this is one of those books I kind of know backward and forward. Um, and I found it in my apartment, and I re-picked it up this morning around 6 o'clock in the morning, and I finished it tonight <laughs> around wow. 6 while going to work in between. Um, it only took me a few hours to read, and it is – I haven't read it in a long time, but it is so bizarre, guys. It It's about these kids who are weird, creepy prodigies, basically, and then they get – visited by some hobos that then turn into like angels that actually turn out to be stars right. in the universe that, that um, book I, <laughs> I remember reading it when i was it must have been like fifth or sixth grade and it had a pretty profound effect on me it, it, but the weird thing is, is i remember so very little of it apart from when they lose the ability to taste things and everything starts to taste like sand that that's in that book right yep um, Weird. I had no idea this book was this psychedelic. Oh, it's really funky. It's crazy. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, so it seems like um, science fiction at first, and then it becomes more like horror in a way. And they they basically go into they they travel through time and space, and they're on like the other side of the universe, and you know they just have they're trying to defeat like this negative force in the universe which is essentially the thing that makes all people drones. So it's science fiction in that way, but there's a lot of religious talk in it and, like, uh, quotes about what makes us human and quoting from Shakespeare, and it's very strange. It's a very strange book. And then there are three more about the same family, and they're all weird. Like, the second one is about going, like, bacteriology, and then one is two kids get sucked into the book of genesis right oh my god i remember that oh my god yes and i just yes screamed in your ears everyone i'm sorry <laughs> I, I i really wish that children's literature nowadays was this creative because i feel like i mean i know everybody loves harry potter but i'm not a harry potter person at all i've never been able to finish any of the books but like to me it seems so derivative of like existing tropes you know like mm -hmm. oh he's a wizard he rides a broom like witches they have owls and like it was all sort of a combination of things that were already out there about witches and wizards and like hearing you talk about this book it sounds so out of the box creative and interesting in a way that i feel like you know obviously the twilight books are not and harry potter but like when was the last time a children's book was that far well out i think there's, there's probably a ton of them we just aren't reading them anymore because we're adults but you know i have friends who write children's books no, but that, kids our kids reading yeah, I think, them i think some of them are um, but I think the thing about Wrinkle in Time and also like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is that they're really heavily seeped in religious imagery. Now, when you go back and read them as an adult, like Julia just said, I think it, it becomes more overt. Like, I, I don't remember reading Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and thinking, oh, this is going to end up poorly for the Jews, you know, but, <laughs> you know, right. when I. Oh, well, no, but that is a very clear propaganda piece. I mean, he wrote that with that in mind. 
But I, is that true about A Wrinkle in Time? Is A Wrinkle in Time overtly Christian? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Christian things that are mentioned overtly, but it's about something even more, which is about what makes us human and then sort of fits Christianity into that. It's really hmm. interesting in that way. But, I mean, it's interesting that you asked that, writer because I'm not sure where children's literature is right now, but I'm sure you guys all know that Maurice Sendak died this week. Mm-hmm. And he was a big proponent of saying, like, listen, children can handle disturbing things. Children right. can handle weirdness. They can handle challenge more than not just that they can handle it, but that they deserve to be spoken to about these themes. And with his death and Shel Silverstein's death and Madeline Langle's death, I mean, they're all and those to me are like the big three of like the complete weirdos who somehow made it into <laughs> extremely right. popular children's fiction. It's a great book. I really highly recommend it if you somehow missed it as a kid. It really awakens the weird terror in every 12-year-old. <laughs> what every 12-year-old needs to be scared out of their pants. So um, I, I get free books in the mail all the time. And this week I received in the mail a book called KBL colon Kill Bin Laden, a novel based on true events by John Weissman, which Aww. is... Yes, which is, and I'm I'm now showing the cover to my friends here on the internet. Um, it is a novel that uh, attempts to put into fiction the events leading up to the killing of Osama bin Laden. Um, on the back, it says, "A riveting novel drawn from actual events." KBL colon Kill Bin Laden brings to life the drama behind SEAL Team Six's stunning raid that brought about the long-awaited destruction of the 21st century's most ruthless killer now here's the thing if i'm gonna pay 6.99 for a, a mass market paperback book or however much this book costs i don't want to know how it ends before i even start to read it <laughs> <laughs> i mean call me crazy um so this book looks, looks horrible um but i had to know like what kind of dialogue they give obama this is a some fascinating stuff here it's a meeting between the cia director and President Obama. <clears throat> it goes a little something like this. Oh, God. The president looked quizzically at the DCIA. CIA set up an inoculation program. We did, Mr. President, through a false flag front, which is an organization that doesn't know it's working for CIA, because the fucking president wouldn't know what that means. Uh, <laughs> we covertly funded a Pakistan-based NGO that wanted to offer hepatitis B shots in Abbottabad, then we slipped in our penetration agent. Ah, yeah. Penetration agent. A physician as, as a volunteer inoculator. We figured we could get some bang for the buck by not only getting him inside the compound, but also doing some good for the people of Abbottabad. What is this? So it's just like expositional dialogue? Like, That's our president having a conversation with the CIA. I don't understand. So this is like... Fifty Shades of CIA. This is like war porn, basically. Yeah, wait, is this war fan fiction? No. Oh, maybe. Um, but let's jump to the end, since we pretty much know how this ends. Um, so this is page 362. Garbage goes off the stern. Not to mention the fact that the big nuclear-powered carrier had four big nuclear-powered screws, and each screw had five big blades. Drop something off close to the stern, and there was a chance. Remote, but still a chance. It would be turned into chum. Fish food. Shark bait. Just desserts. Desserts. For sharks, that is. See, what they're saying is that no. Bin Laden would be eaten by sharks. <laughs> that is the worst last sentence I've ever heard. For sharks. Shark bait. Chum. Shark food. The, the, what they're trying to say is that when they drop Bin Laden in the ocean... He got churned up and then eaten by sharks. Um, the author is uh, seven times New York Times bestselling author John Weissman. So he sold more books probably today than I've sold in my entire life. And I've clearly been writing the wrong kinds of books when I could be writing the true story of... No, I'm sorry, not the true story. The novelization of the death of Osama bin Laden. I find this very distressing. I don't like this one. Don't, not a good pick. Boo. Unlike Shades of Grey, though, really hard to beat off to that book. For you. <laughs> for my, uh, for my, my bookshelf revisit is going to be uh, very writerly. Uh, I, 
uh, I just wanted to talk about a book. Um, it's called uh, Story by Robert McKee. And it's sort of a classic book of screenwriting. Um, but I find that it's actually not the most helpful book uh, in terms of screenwriting. Um, it's more this really sort of dogmatic and aggressive uh, approach to story. And if you've hmm. seen the movie Adaptation, then Brian Cox plays Robert McKee, and apparently that's the way his seminars actually are, his screenwriting seminars. He's, he yells at people in the audience, and he's like, you know, what is your movie about? What does your story say? And then he's like really aggressive. And his book is really aggressive. It's actually very helpful for, for, for writing um, because he's, he's so insistent on this very basic level that things happen Mm-hmm. And that things change and that events and characters sort of push forward and shift within some sort of value system. Right. And it seems really basic, but it's it's something that I think a lot of writers, you know, we become writers because we are sensitive to the world around us or we we have a way with words or we like the way certain things sound. And a lot of times the, the notion of story doesn't come naturally and the notion of... Um, making sure that a person wants to turn the page to find out what's going to happen next. And so this, I read this book for the first time about 12 years ago. And it's funny because there are other screenwriting books that I refer to more often and that I've read more often to help me with my screenwriting. I actually only flip through story every once in a while. And it's, it's sort of like a, a mantra that you can just flip through like, and hit one of these sentences and you'll be like, ah, I have to make something change. And every once in a while, you kind of need that to, like, reboot you to, you know, get back into the page and remember why you're writing. Because so often you just are writing without direction or knowing, you know, you're just pages and pages are pouring out of you. And sometimes you insert conflict, but you don't have conflict with values. And that's what his book is really um, about. And I've recommended this to novelists. I've recommended it to poets. And... I, I, every single one of them has come back and said, thank you for recommending that screenwriting book because it really <laughs> did affect me and it really did influence my writing. And uh, so I just wanted to throw that out there. It's, you know, it's one of those things that I think every screenwriting program requires is like their first textbook. And, um, and there are a lot of detractors and people that sort of hate McKee, but um, I totally recommend reading it. Even if you end up hating it, it's something you should contend with as a writer and, and decide how you feel about uh, I, it was about it was about ten ten or twelve years ago that I read this book and then I read Stephen King's On Writing, which is another great. Oh, I like book that book. Such a great book. Yeah, and uh, that one has a much more narrative sort of thrust, and it's obviously more about prose. But um, they're both they they sort of make companion pieces in how aggressive they are in like forcing you to think about what's actually happening and reorienting your brain on on story itself. And I well, it really shows a lot of respect for the reader. You know, rather mm-hmm. than I'm just going to create this mood and assume that you're going to linger here. I mean, that's not why most people read. Right. And not that everyone should be writing for most people, but it is very good to remind yourself, like, why you why you like the things you like. Why people right. like children's liter- literature. Why people like, you know, summer blockbuster movies. It's because they like the stories behind them. So that sounds exactly. like awesome. Yeah, well, that's the thing that, you know, that's the thing that I remember Stephen King says. He's like, I would so much rather have a poorly written story where things happen than a really, really eloquent, wonderfully written story where nothing happens. And I think that that has totally played itself out when you see the success of YA books as popular literature or Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, which I haven't read yet. (laughs) But 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 we'll make a judgment on. (laughs) I mean, reading McKee for me is sort of like reading about music theory, you know, where it's like you go, oh, that's right. Like, that's why music works in these sort of chord progressions. They just sound good. Mm -hmm. Like, we can't deny that, like, certain notes in certain succession will always sound pleasing you know pocketball's canon mm-hmm. is like a perfect it's a pattern you know it's not it's not like a brilliant piece of music it's in the sense that it, it stretches a pattern or change it just hits those like really fundamental sort of and i think that you you know if any musician worth their salt has to learn those sort of patterns and then they can break them and stretch them but if you don't understand that that there's a basic form to the way that we listen or that we hear sounds that is pleasing in the same way, I, th- I feel that way about story. And I feel like we need to, you know, you need to recognize the constant, you know, patterns, and especially with film, because film is way more formulaic than a novel. But, you know, I, I think it helps. It helps to just approach even a chapter if you're writing a novel. It helps to approach it from this perspective. Um, 
you can't hurt. It's good to be aware of the formulas, whether or not you want to use them. I agree with that. Yes, that's a great point. All right. Well, great, great reading, guys. Except for yours, Chad. Yours was awful. I'm actually going to, I might read this Kill Bin Laden book just to find out what happens. I figure there's probably going to be some good pro-America stuff in yeah. there, though. Very patriotic. Make you feel like a patriot. All right. Yeah. Stick around on Literary Disco when we discuss Above the Factory. Next. Okay, everybody. Welcome back to Literary Disco. One of the things we want to do here on a semi-regular basis is highlight some short stories in literary magazines that perhaps people aren't familiar with. Um, And that would be, I suspect, the majority of the American population who don't read literary magazines. Um, There's a great online journal called Five Chapters that... um, serializes long short stories, which is great because there's not a huge market for stories that are over about uh, 5,000 words. Um, And it's online. It's fivechapters.com. And they've published stories from just a a, a ton of folks. Um, They do it weekly. um, And they always have compelling and interesting stories. It's curated by a gentleman named Dave Daly, who used to be an editor at the uh, New York Journal News. He started Five Chapters a couple years ago um, just as a, as a literary journal, and now he also has Five Chapters books. It's, uh, it's rolled into a, a great small press. They recently published Emma Straub's book, uh, Other People We Married, and Jess Rose, Nobody Ever Gets Lost. Um, so it's, it's a cool website just to check out in general, a great place to find new voices in literature, and uh, a nice place to to read short fiction on a on a daily basis while you're sitting in your cubicle at your dead end job wanting to die um so i found a story there that i really liked called above the factory by a writer named jerry gabriel who quite frankly i'd never heard of um and his bio on his webs on the uh, on the website here says that his story collection, Drowned Boy, won the Mary McCarthy Prize in short fiction. It was uh, published by Saraband, and it was chosen as a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer selection really? and also won the 2011 Towson Prize for Literature. Um, he teaches creative writing at St. Mary's College of Maryland and lives in Southern Maryland with his wife and his daughter. And his name, again, is Jerry Gabriel. And the story is Above the Factory. Um, I... I selected the story for us to read for the first time because I thought it um, was something that all three of us might really enjoy. I think it has elements of regular, good old-fashioned narrative fiction, a little bit of surreal fiction, um, and just enough non-fiction-y type stuff uh, about the history of this small town to to entice our friend Julia, who's the realist (laughs) among us, yes. Um, So let's talk a bit about Above the Factory. Julia, what what were your thoughts about the story? Maybe give us a little idea what the story's about. Okay, sure. Um, This story is about a couple um, named Charles and what's her name, Sarah? Sharon. Sharon. And they moved to a small town thinking that uh, this is what they want. They've done a lot of online research. They seem to feel like they want a certain kind of life. And then the surreal aspect of the story, which I loved, is that they move into this house and they discover that there's a factory in the basement and people come and go and they're making something kind of mysterious. And it's kind of about them accepting and dealing with this life that they've chosen and trying to settle into it. That's all I'll say without describing the entire story. <laughs> and the, the, the surreal element, there, there's a bit of a question as to whether or not it actually is surreal. I mean, it's actually, literally, the, they buy a house that they really, they buy it almost sight unseen, it says in the story. Mm-hmm. And they don't ever really go into the basement. And then on their first day of living in this house, they've moved across the country from the west, some nebulous part of the west where there's a desert. Could be they were my neighbors, and I forced them out through my weird peeping tom-like activities. Um, and they they wake up because they the the wife Sharon hears someone at the door, and it turns out that in fact the bottom portion of their house is a working factory making something for metal detectors, as I recall, for uh, for airports. Um, and so it's surreal in the sense that how could it possibly be that there is a factory in the bottom of a house? But it's treated very realistically. 
it's not like an Amy Bender story or something where they're all also existing inside of a baked potato. So the, it's handled very, very literally, um, and it's handled, I think, um, in a, sort of a laconic way where they just say, well, okay, I guess we now own a factory, and there's an accountant and money, and and they realize they've, they've, they now have another source of income. So there's there's that tangible aspect, but I think like all great stories where something weird is found underneath something, that that factory begins to impede on their life. It begins to impede specifically on the wife's emotions. Do you want to talk about that a bit, Ryder? Well, I mean, it's actually kind of a weak point of the, of the story for me is that um, I kind of wish it had impeded on the wife's life a little bit more. Instead, what ends up happening plot-wise is the story sort of veers off to um, a co-worker um, of uh, the husband um, and he sort of begins to suspect that something's not right about uh, this couple and where they live and why they chose to live there and so the story sort of the second half of the story becomes following his investigation to, to get to the truth uh, which is you know to, to uncover the, the factory in a way because they haven't told anybody that they have this factory under their house and they decide to keep it a secret um, and of course the, we should back up and say the reason that the co-worker starts to wonder about uh, the main character is that he's too happy he's right. too joyous Charles is too content that, right too content right yeah. and you know I mean you know, ultimately the story becomes sort of a like revolutionary road sort of you know how we what we settled for in order to be domestic kind of story and and i wish it had pushed that more and and actually gotten into the head of sharon the wife and 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 even charles the main character a little bit more because as it is um it sort of veers into this this one afternoon but you know this this conflict between um this this co-worker of charles Roger, Roger, Roger Brass, and then Roger brings this woman who he has, you know, this past with named Meredith, and they do this sort of double date, and the, and that takes up most of the the you know the the second half of the story. Why? I think it, it, to to stay with the 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 domestic scene. Getting at was this like all the sacrifices and all the sort of make in order to you know the suburban life that we decide is good for us interesting and i'm i'm, I'm not sure if the, the story needed to introduce the roger brass how do you guys feel about that what's interesting is that you know roger isn't looking for the factory he's looking he's just looking for this source of happiness and then he gets also distracted by his date's own a heightened emotional <laughs> like spin-off story <laughs> and crossover it, episode with a love boat exactly and uh to me the factory well i mean exactly what you're talking about Ryder. like the compromises we make for this domestic life is like what is their life actually built on what are they taking from society while turning their heads the other way to have this domestic life and ultimately they find it totally unsatisfying but i felt like Roger and Meredith were having some kind of parallel narr narrative. It was just less less clear. Obviously, there wasn't a metaphor that they were literally returning to every couple of paragraphs. The I don't know how that relates to the factory, and and so I think ultimately, like the the, the criticism that I would offer is that is the seed of this story pushed far enough, you know. Um, because you have this great idea, which is the factory living under the house, and and. And, you know, I think if, if this was in the hands of Amy Bender or actually I think the, the closer Milhauser and how or, he, or George Saunders, George Saunders. Yeah. Like but Stephen yeah. Milhauser in specific, he likes to do things that are sort of like miniature that grow and grow and grow out mm -hmm. of control or, you know, and and I think that that it started to feel like that. And I was almost hoping that it would go that direction where, uh, you know, Charles would become obsessed with the factory and it would sort of start to intrude on their domestic life or or that he would need the factory for some reason. Um, but instead, it's sort of no, he, he's, he just deals with the factory and they just make the thing. And in the same way, like what the factory is producing ends up being kind of functional and and not that ridiculous and it's like well i actually wish that they were producing something ridiculous if it was like making beanie baby buttons or something really <laughs> stupid it would have made a better point to me you know because then 
the real problem I have with the story is in the moment the book Das Capital shows up in the middle of the book or in the middle of the story, it's like, oh, oh, we're we're gonna really be heavy handed and insert that you know Sharon is sitting around reading Das Capital, and it's like, okay, so we have this Marxist what are we producing under the house theme, like really boldly stated and underlined by having her read this, you know, book. Uh, but, but then everything else is sort of half ass about the story. Like, uh, well, it's, it's kind of surreal, but it's not, not really going to go there. It's kind of weird that there's this factory, but it's not that weird. Um, you know, it's, and I, I just feel like maybe, maybe in this name of realism, he ended up sacrificing what would have been, a more interesting story if he had pushed things farther two things one like to me the story was so much about complacency that i liked the like there are so many factories that make parts of larger machines you know and that's just as relevant the fact that they don't they kind of know what it is but they don't and they don't care is pretty much everything in my entire home was probably made that way you know? <laughs> seriously though including your boyfriend my robot boyfriend <laughs> but i i also really liked um meredith the girlfriend who's kind of brought along as like a complete prop but then it turns out she's you know she's on the other end of having some kind of self-realization or she was to me more interesting than Sharon. You're right. I don't care about Sharon like sitting around on her couch, like what's happening. I like the character that's already on the all the way at the extreme. Like, all right, I'm done with this, but I'll just like play this part for ten minutes, and then you know whatever. I don't want to give anything away. Stanley El- Stanley Elkin said that he'd never write a character who wasn't on the edge of something. You know, because you never they're wild cards. They can go one way or the other, and it's going to cause a ripple through the story. So in this case, the wife, yeah, she's sitting there reading Das Kapital, and you just think, well, unless she becomes, you know, uh, a Marxist during the course of this story, it, it's just sort of a, a funny, strange moment. But there's there's sort of a, a tradition of stories like this. There's, uh, there's a fantastic story by Kelly Link called uh, Stone Animals about Again, a professional couple that moves to suburbia. The husband has a job uh, in the big city, and the wife has to stay home and take care of the kids in this case. They don't have kids in, uh, in, um, above the factory. Uh, or even a, a story like The Ceiling by Kevin Brockmeyer where um, you know, a, a thing appears in the sky and starts pressing down on a city, and it begins to be a metaphor for the end of this, this couple's marriage and for a deception that's gone on and, and you know, the, the calamity of suburban life and all these other you know, metaphors and stuff. Um, but basically it's that the, the, the force of domestic life being... A haunting thing, a somehow a spiritually enervating thing that wrecks people. Um, and so when I look at the story that way and I think about what a great idea it is to have this house above a factory that they weren't um, familiar with, I think about how it, it, it takes that kind of story one step further. It's the horror of suburban life spoken by me, a person who lives behind a gate in a city where I don't need to live behind a gate, Um, the horror of domestic life on top of the history of what that place used to be, which would be a functioning uh, industrial town. You know, all the industrial towns of the, of the East basically have, have died, you know, they, and they've become these hamlets, you know, places like Cooperstown or what have you. And so I really like the, uh, the metaphor that the author is working with, with this house above a factory. And for me, I, I find that middle part where that couple comes in distracting from where he could have gone with that story from where he ends up because where it ends up is actually a wonderful little scene i loved the ending mm-hmm. um and i i just sort of wished that like you said that we had this good idea and then if he had found a way to get to that ending scene uh just sort of organically um but as it is it's it, it really does take a, a weird turn for me yeah, I love the ending too. Yeah, the yes. ending was wonderful, and that's—I mean—that's why it's definitely worth reading because it is a great idea, like you're saying, Todd. Like the 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 sort of metaphorical background, and I mean, all—it's very interesting and it's well done and it's well written too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. Um, oh, and and I think it's—you know—we're—we're—I uh, think that the tragedy sometimes of literary criticism is that we're we have to sometimes find things to talk about that we don't like, and it overshadows the things that we do like, and I think. What Jerry Gabriel has accomplished here is is better than the parts that we don't like. I, I think 
this is a, a powerful story about the, the choices people make to live the life they think that they want to have. Um, and I find that, I find it heartbreaking and I find it um, familiar in ways that make me uncomfortable <laughs> um, <laughs> because, you know, it, it's not so different from the choices we all make about love and family um, and what we want to do with our lives and our jobs. And so I find a lot of really compelling writing in the story itself. And, and I think the idea, just the, the mere idea and, and the gumption to write a story about people who buy a house that they don't realize has a basement that's a factory is the kind of thing where you think, ah, oh, why didn't I ever think of that idea? What a great idea. We hate Jerry Gabriel. Um, and, and, and for that alone, you know, it shows just a tremendous amount of promise uh, to me. It's a little gimmicky. And I, I know what you're saying. Like, I agree with it. And, and, and it's, it's sort of like this conceptual, like, aha feeling that you get when you read a short story like this. But I also wonder if that's just sort of trendy right now. Like, I mean, because I, I, I feel like the most successful contemporary writers are doing exactly this, which is inserting one very bizarre element into an otherwise realistically told in terms of characters and dialogue that's all very yeah. there's I mean, there's a level you, of realism you're seeing it a lot more often you know I, I, and i think actually the one person who is a closer parallel to this writer would be a writer named david means i don't know if either of you are are familiar no. with him but you know he he's been best american short stories eight thousand times and and he writes sort of the, sometimes he has stories where there's you know something odd that's you know takes place on the back of a goldfish or something no he has a story that about a, a goldfish um, but at any rate, you know, he, he does unusual things. Or, or a writer like Melanie Rayton, where there's some offbeat part of it. Both of those writers tend to be sort of darker and, and hewing more towards almost noir with their oddities. Um, but, I, you know, I agree. But see, I wonder... But I, what I wonder about these is like, okay, because we're in a time when a lot of people are writing and a lot of people have access to publishing or putting stuff on the internet. And so are we attracted to these stories? Are our editors of literary magazines attracted to these stories because they stand out from the crowd with this sort of conceptual, you know, whatever it is, this, this gimmick that is inserted into a story. And, you know, it, I, I don't know, like I sort of yearned for, like, I mean, that's from, to me why, like, Das Capital, like, literally showing up in the book made me roll my eyes because it was like, clearly this person has an intellectual point that they're trying to make. And clearly they came up with this funny idea, which is funny and interesting. But rather than letting it, like, what I love about Amy Bender, for instance, is that she lets it just sort of remain surreal and remain mm -hmm. weird and doesn't really bring in this intellectual point to sort of insert in there. And this one was very clearly like, you know, Oh, how are, you know, our methods of production are right underneath us and we're ignoring it. And, you know, we live in this capitalistic society where we just ignore how things are made. Like, it's very obviously sort of thrown on there. And there's not enough time spent developing these characters and letting the sort of domestic struggle just be a domestic struggle or even taking the gimmick of the factory and making it more morally complicated. He sort of avoids that, too. So it just becomes this cool idea and then, well, a lukewarm sort of story tacked onto it, and then a really well-written final scene that does hit an emotional chord. But I don't know if that's... I, I don't know. I'm sort of just throwing it... But I was just listening to what you were saying, and sort of like, God, it's actually bothering me that I feel like I've read a lot of these types of stories lately, you know, co contemporary stories that are doing this sort of thing. Well, I think the challenge also is that, you know, if you're going to write a story about a husband and wife in a domestic situation feeling trapped by it right. or feeling happy about it. Well, you know. There's a million of us. <laughs> there's a million of them. And who wants to read it? And, and Alice Monroe already wrote it, and she wrote it better than you. Right. Um, so I think there's, there's that challenge. Like short stories have now been, they're in two modes. It's either super, super minimal, minimalist, you know, um, where literally nothing happens and it's just a scene, or it's something like this where, you know, there's a weird twist or a weird something or other overlaid into a story. And that's most of the time doesn't succeed as well as it probably could. I, I don't know if there's time writer to do in a short story to do what you're asking it to do. I mean, there's a huge difference between the length of freedom and the length of this. <laughs> Certainly. That's a good point. So, I, I mean, I read a lot more novels than I read short stories. So I feel, I know, Todd, that you read tons of short stories. So 
I'm not sure if I can hold any ground in this conversation, but I, like I said, I always read good short stories to come across, even if it's a complex one, one mood, one idea, one strong sense of character. You know, I forgive a short story much more for making just quote unquote one point or, mm-hmm. or one idea. So that's it. Yeah, I, I liked I liked it. I wouldn't have read a whole book in this style though. So if you want to read the story, it is again on fivechapters.com. It's Jerry Gabriel's story above the factory and really spend a lot, little time if you can at fivechapters.com. They have a just a wealth of great short fiction and uh, I think Dave Daly is doing really terrific things with that website. So it's fivechapters.com. It's Jerry Gabriel's story above the factory and this has been Literary Disco. Welcome back to Literary Disco. Um, I'm Julia, and I'm here with Ryder and Todd. Hi, guys. Hello there. And uh, we have a new game segment for you, which we are going to call Judge a Book by Its Cover, except that's not what we're doing at all. So So that might be the worst title ever. (laughs) I don't know. I think the classic corner with two Ks might be the worst title ever, but it sure is a good title. And that would be in Comic Sans font. Blue Comic Sans, I believe. Anyway, um, Judge a Book by Its Cover is a game in which one of us will read the first line from several books um, to the other two, and you guys are going to have to guess what the books are about, if they are good, and whatever else you want to riff on. Sound good? Yep. Sounds good. All right. I have three selections for review today. I'm not going to tell you the title of the book because you might know them, but I'm just going to read the first line. So, selection number one. Here we go. This is the first line of book number one. I believe that was Picture. established. <laughs> I was I was deciding whether or not to read the first two or not, but I think right. we should be purists. I'm just going to go with the first one. I believe okay. you are correct. In the spirit of the game, go ahead. All right. Picture a summer stolen whole from some coming-of-age film set in small-town 1950s. Wow, that's wow. the first line of the book? hmm Can you repeat it again? Can you say it one more time? I'll give you the opportunity to ask for the second line or the first line of the second chapter, if that would help you. Ooh, I'd like to hear the first line of the second chapter in addition to the first line of the book. Okay. I'll give you a little hint. There's a prologue and then a first chapter, so this Ooh. is the first line of the prologue. Okay. Picture a summer stolen whole from some coming-of-age film set in small-town 1950s. And then the first line of the real first chapter is, what I warn you to remember is that I am a detective. Ooh. Wow. This is great. Um, Stolen. Wait, I don't even understand the first one. Is it a stolen hole? Is that (laughs) something about a hole and stolen summer? Yes. I believe this is a pornographic (laughs) novel. Okay. So we're talking about vaginas, right? Right. Okay. Yes. 1950 vagina. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. What is the line? No. It's something about a hole in there, which doesn't make any sense to me. No, not a hole. W-H-O-L-E. Oh. A <laughs> summer. Oh, oh. Picture a summer stolen hole. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Got it. Got oh, it. my God. I've read this book. I think I've read this book. Hold on. Let me ask. Is this book Irish? Yes. Yes, I totally know this book. All right, I gotta do, I gotta recuse myself then. <laughs> All right, Todd, what is this book about? Um, and the first line of the first chapter is, "You must remember, I am a detective." What I warn you to remember is that I am a detective. Huh. Well, I don't believe the main character is actually a detective. I believe he is. I, well, I believe it's a he. Um, and I believe he is using that line metaphorically and that he's investigating his own life. Mm, so it's sort of like a call me Ishmael first line. Right. Right. Um, I believe it is a coming of age novel that involves a young man sleeping with an older woman. Like the graduate style. No, more like uh, something I'd see on Cinemax at about 3 a.m. So he's a gardener. <laughs> 
She's a rich heiress. You really went for the hole, is what you're saying. You went for, you went for the I, H-O-L. Imagine the H-O-L. 50-year-old hole. Yeah, that's all you heard. You that's heard all I heard. Summer 50-year-old hole. Right. I just, uh, I'm imagining, um, uh, you know, grandma porn, basically, is, is what I'm looking at. So this is, if I remember, and I don't have any idea what the book is called, but it's about a... Uh, a kid, a, a, it's about a detective. It is a detective, and when he yep. was a kid, his two best friends were kidnapped. That's um, right. And oh. he is now investigating a new kidnapping that took place in the same woods where he was kidnapped as a kid. Oh, is this a, is this an Ian Rankin book? No, it's called In the Woods by Tana French. Oh, Tana French yeah, it won the Edgar Award for best uh, first novel two years ago. It did. Yeah, it it's was an good. Edgar Award winner. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Huh. That sounds like a really compelling book. And I it's one of those books I always look at the cover and I think, nah, I don't want to buy that. You huh. know, I think yeah. you will you will actually love this book, Todd. It's right up your alley. It sounds like it's it. a really great use of setting too. That's what's amazing about that book, is that it like it captures this small Irish town that he is uh like going back to to investigate. It's pretty cool. No, the weird thing is is I just assumed the narrator and the author were both men. Um because you're a sexist pig. Well, right. right. There's that. I wonder if it's the word detective. Like, I, I see detective and I think dude in a trench coat. Yeah. No, I do too. I can't help it. It's a really aggressive writing style. It's very bossy, those first couple mm-hmm. lines I read you. Yeah, it's sort of. So, well, the first line sounds like a coming-of-age novel, and then the first chapter sounds like the beginning of a noir book. But it is both. I mean, that prologue is coming-of-age because he's describing the afternoon on which his friends were kidnapped. Hmm. So... And from those, just from those first two lines, it sounds like a really good book. Like, those are lines where you think, oh, this is a writer who's pretty sure of him or herself. All right. You guys ready for number two? We are. I, I, I'm always ready to go number two, if you know what I'm saying. All right. We'll edit that out. <laughs> number two. Um, I'm going to take out a word here because I think it might identify the book. Dear blank. After long and fruitless waiting, I have determined to write to you myself, as much for your sake as for mine, as I would not like to think that I had passed through two long years of imprisonment without ever having received a single line from you, or any news or message even, except such as give me pain. Oh, wow. I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling 1800s. I'm feeling like it's classic. Well, but that's maybe just because it's an epistolary style. So hold on, let me think. Go ahead, Ryder. What are you thinking? An epistolary. Uh, yes, it was an epistolary. Novel. It is. It is. Um, I, it's. It. But it's also. Um, like that was all one sentence, right? I mean, that's a pretty mm-hmm. long sentence. That's not. It's. It definitely feels a little nineteenth century, or maybe it's trying to be a little nineteenth century. Uh, I actually didn't like that sentence very much. Uh, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I, I don't think I would like this book based on that first sentence. Okay, I want to give you guys a hint here. Okay. This is nonfiction. Nonfiction. Well, obviously this person's in prison. Right. Or some kind of, <laughs> uh, I guess. Or it's a metaphor. Yeah, well, what, what could it be a metaphor for, though? I mean, imprisonment where you're not getting, you're, you're expecting to hear a letter from, ah. Well, and also there's a letter involved, but not like prisoners get emails uh, or telegrams. That's amazing. I would have totally assumed that that was fiction and not great fiction at that. Because people aren't that pretentious in real life, usually. Yeah. And I imagine it has to do with someone, for some reason, in an Irish prison during the Troubles. Okay, I'm going to say it's somebody. Irish prison's not bad at all. But I'm going to (laughs) say, I'm going to say it's somebody writing to... Some they're they're in prison and there's something with you know, obviously the crime so they're writing to the person that they supposedly committed the crime to or on. You like guys the, are so close. It's amazing. Okay, Ooh, so I'm right, going to say it has it? something to do with the uh, with the, Michael the Collins. Victim, the victim Michael of the Collins. crime. The victim of the crime is somehow related to this. You know who this person's writing to. I don't know. What okay, I'm going to give you one more hint. Okay. You are absolutely correct with the time period. Okay. So it's the 19. Wait. It's the 1800s. The 19th, 19th century. century or the Irish troubles during the troubles. Which one? All of those are correct. Oh my God. For, forget the troubles, okay, but, but the Irish, Irish aspect is correct. Wow. Um, huh. 
somebody in jail writing to someone who won't write them back except for painful shit. Huh. Well, why don't you just tell us what it is? Okay, I will. <laughs> it is, um, it's De Profundis. It's Oscar Wilde's letters to his lover. Jesus. Oh, my God. Wow. For whom, you know, their relationship is obviously why he went to jail. And um, he, it's an amazing story because when he was in jail, they only gave him one sheet of paper at a time. Mm-hmm. So after he finished that sheet, it was like uneditable, but it's one very, very long letter. It's a book length letter about their relationship and how cruel Bozy, his lover was to him. Wow. Um, That's amazing. It is. Yeah. So it isn't, you know, it isn't like a very polished read mm-hmm. because it's so emotional and depressing. Right. Number three. All you right. guys ready for this one? Yeah. We went to the moon to have fun, but the moon turned out to completely suck. That's a great first line. That is a great first line. I think it's Interstellar Pig. It's not. <laughs> oh, my God. I totally, that was a good call. Uh, I'm going to say this is about uh, people doing drugs or uh, listening to music or like, I feel like this is about counterculture in some way. So this is somebody's personal account of a. It's, I don't know if it's fiction or nonfiction, but the narrator is uh, talking about like a crazy experience of some kind, like a crazy summer, a crazy semester. I'll tell you, it is fiction. Okay. It's fiction. It is a YA novel. The narrator is funny and ironic all the way through and is a 17-year-old girl, but she's sassy like a gay 17-year-old boy. <laughs> mm. It's uh... totally a YA novel, isn't it? It is a YA novel, yeah. <laughs> All right. So I was way off. Todd, Todd was on the money. All right. So let me give you this because I want to hear you riff on what you guys think the plot might be. Okay. So it's YA and it's, it's, that's a literal statement in the context of the book. So okay. it's a futuristic YA novel. So you tell me what it's about. Uh, there is a uh, base on the moon where humans get to live now. Uh, it's been colonized. Um, but it's a, it's an ironic book, obviously, clearly, without a doubt. So the kids that get to go to the moon, it's like going to anywhere else. It's like going to Philadelphia when you're 14. Oh, gotta go to Philadelphia and see that, that cracked bell. Um, I think there's probably, um, a love story. I think there's a good chance someone gets sucked out into the atmosphere and dies. And I'm pretty sure at some point, um... There's a, a scene where people are walking on the face of the moon and looking down at Earth and wondering about how insignificant everything really is. Okay, I think Todd has completely missed the alien factor. This is clearly, <laughs> there's clearly a relationship with an alien. I think, I think that there's, this, is, this is an interstellar romance, YA. I think this is, this is sort of like, um, I'm seeing, instead of vampires in Twilight, it's a human who falls in love with aliens. Oh, God. To eat her, because they usually eat humans. So it's, it's sort of, it's, it's Twilight in space. But mm. with a much sort of more tongue-in-cheek uh, narrator. Uh, and not so self-important. Mm. Well... You're both pretty much wrong. <laughs> it's about but a pig. Someone does get sucked out of the airlock, though, right? That has to happen. <laughs> no, I don't oh, think it does. Um, it is, this book is Feed by M.T. Anderson. It is actually a really, really good book. Um, so there, there is obviously a romantic element, but it's not Twilighty at all. It's about, um, obviously takes place in the future, and it's about uh, kids having... Um, Basically, like, Facebook feeds and advertisement installed into your cerebral cortex. So you can, like, advertisers can advertise directly to your brain. And this is the amazing part. You can, like, chat with someone in your brain. So so you can have all those, like, side kind of conversations. And it's just about the implications of that kind of future. Actually, can we go back for a second? What is the person's name who wrote this book? M.T. Anderson. Okay, so this is this is a, this is a thing. Why do authors, in particular, give themselves the first two letter initial name thing? Like, why is that a book thing? Like, you I, never hear about an actor giving themselves a name and being like, "I'm R.K. Strong." <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't happen. But for some reason in literature, well, there's C. Thomas Howell. 
Who's that's an actor? Who's oh Jesus, yes, yeah, that's an actor. Now, <laughs> you, picked a, you picked an obscure. If you had said Jonathan Taylor Thomas, I wouldn't know what you're talking about. But I'll tell you why that happened. That happens because SAG. It's actually a rule in our union for actors. You cannot have the same name as another actor. Right. So that's why in later generations, like if you notice in the '90s, every kid actor had three names because right. if you had a name that had been used in the union, and it's only going to continue to happen where actors have to keep using uh you know using their middle names or whatever but it for some reason i find it really odd that in books there's like it's it's almost like expected that somebody can give themselves just the first couple why is that like what's uh, they, the, why they, is that there's a, a very there's a very specific reason i think a lot of people do it which is that you don't know the sex of the author so that way oh. so i don't it's know a way if, to sort of eliminate right but is for that women. really true anymore like yes you yes. mean it's true that you wouldn't know the gender of the author like i feel like there's enough meta information that comes with any given book that right. I always know whether I'm reading a male or a female author. Well, I'll give you a specific example. I know that's the case with J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter. She because she's Yeah, because she's writing a book for, you know, boys and girls, but the main character is male. And I think there was a fear that uh, boys wouldn't buy a book by a woman author. Right. I mean, and that would be the same, you know, with female authors throughout the years but i don't know why someone like t.s Eliot would do that i mean that's not the same reason i honestly i feel like i i roll my eyes when somebody changes their name to their initials i can't help it like we I have just, a friend who just did that with their first yes, book i feel i feel like it's a way to make your name sound more authorly yes i feel I like it's you. a way to say i am an official author I, because i just you know I think it goes back to T.S. Eliot because I think he's kind of the most famous example. W.H. Auden. I mean, there's a lot but of who them. was first. Eliot was before Auden. Yeah. So I just, I just, I feel like it became a sort of tradition of some kind back in the early 20th century, and now it's like a way for a young writer to be like, oh, I'm, I'm to be taken seriously as a literature. And right. Just, like, uh, like L.L. Cool J, for right. instance. Right. Similar thing. Yeah. The great poet L.L. Okay. Well. That was Judge a Book by its cover. <laughs> and that was remarkable. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah. I'm sure you all knew what all the books were. And that's a wrap for this episode of Literary Disco. Our theme song is by Sean Fox and remixed by Brett Marshall Efforts. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks.